Let me ask you to turn again to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Tonight we return to one of the most important themes in the whole Bible. And I hope one of the most important themes running throughout your life. This theme is at the very heart of true Christianity. And of course I'm speaking of the theme of repentance. Uh, Back before the Christmas season came upon us, we spent several weeks looking at this subject. And if you'll notice on your outline, uh, there are three sections left, and uh, that will be three final sermons. Uh, If you didn't get the outline, they are out there on the podium, so feel free to, to grab one as we get started. What have we already seen? We've seen that Christ calls us to a life of repentance. We've seen that repentance is not just a one-time thing. Repentance is a lifetime thing. And we spent several weeks seeing what true repentance is. And so just as a reminder, I will read that brief definition from the London Confession that's there in the outline. It says, This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow and detestation of it and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing In all things. And so we spent several weeks unpacking that definition of repentance, showing that it is thoroughly biblical, explaining what it means. And now tonight I want to get very practical. And I want to talk about what repentance actually looks like in your daily life and in in my daily life. Um, We're not going to stop there. As I mentioned, I want to preach a message calling us to repent, talking about the urgency of repentance. And we also haven't gotten to the place that sparked this whole series, which was the subject of corporate repentance and what it means for a people to repent together. And I want to talk about what that would look like for us as a church and for us as a nation. How wonderful it would be to see people from Manio to San Francisco, from... Michigan to Texas, united together in repentance over the sins of our land. So I want to talk about corporate repentance and what that would look like and what it would mean for us as a church. Um, But let's do one more tonight. Explaining what individual repentance looks like in our lives. And so look again at our key verse. It's in Matthew 4. And uh, just for, because it's been a while, let's begin again in verse 12. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, he, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Now remember, this word repent is in the present active imperative in the Greek, which simply means it's a word of continuing action. Jesus is not saying repent once. He is saying repent and let your repentance continue. This is a mark of the citizens of the kingdom of God. They repent. They are constantly becoming more and more like the Christians in heaven by putting away those things that they find in their lives that are earthly and worldly and sinful. The whole Christian life is a life of transformation as we turn more and more towards holiness and further and further away from wickedness. And this transformation does not happen passively. Christians must intentionally do this. They're they're choosing. It's an act of the will. We have to choose again and again. Resolve, as we heard about this morning, again and again towards holiness and away from wickedness. So having seen before what this word means, what does repentance actually look like in the Christian life? We're going to look at seven steps here, and I hope you will see that these seven steps are not burdensome, but can be brought into your regular daily life if they are not there already. I would hope, if you're a true Christian in here tonight, you will recognize that these things are already happening in you and as a part of your life. And I hope this study will encourage you to do this all the more. So here's what the practice of repentance looks like in a Christian's life. Number one, God brings sin to our attention. God brings a sin to our attention. So this is, this is getting very practical now. This is where repentance begins. Somehow, you and I are made aware of a sin in our lives. And this is the mark of a lover of Jesus Christ. Rather than simply having our lives interrupted by moments when we are made aware of sin in our lives, we actively seek to be made aware of sin in our lives. We, we want to know, where are those places in my life that I am not like Jesus Christ? Every time we pray, God, make me holy, what are we asking? We're asking for God to open our eyes to places where we're not holy so that we can turn from those things and do right. So what does this look like in a Christian's life? It looks like this. You read your Bible. And you come to church. And you spend time around other believers. You listen to preaching and you participate in Bible study. And as you do these things, you're asking God to help you see those areas of your life in which you are still unchristlike. And then as God shows you those things... You turn from them. Mount Hermon, let me emphasize this again. When I talk about the practice of repentance, I'm not telling you, here's another seven-step process that you need to take another hour out of your day each day to add into your life. That's, That's not what this is. This is not placing a burden upon you, a duty upon you, for you to feel weighed down by. Just the opposite. Repentance should be a very natural part of the Christian life. Christ has saved you and He's given you a new heart so that you are now free to live a joyful life of repentance. It should be your delight to become more and more like the Savior you love. Repentance does not begin by starting something that you're not already doing. Repentance begins by what you're already doing as a Christian. 
seeking to hear from God. And as you encounter God's truth in a ladies' Bible study, in a family worship time, in a service on Sunday, as you encounter God's truth, have a heart that is desiring for God to show you those places where you still have sin in you that you can turn from. What are you looking for as you come to God's truth? What is your purpose in being here tonight? One prayer in your heart should be that of Job in Job 13. Make me know my transgressions and my sin. Now, the Puritans did highly recommend taking a day for prayer and fasting and repentance. That They encouraged Christians every once in a while to just take a day. Don't, don't go to work. Don't do what you normally do. Spend that whole day with God, fasting and crying out for God to show you sins in your life that you still need to overcome. And they would encourage Christians to spend that day especially studying the law of God. Looking into the law as a mirror. Meditating on the law. Examining your life in the reflection of the law of God. Revealing the sins that you still have to deal with. That's certainly a good thing if you ever want to do that. But even if you never take a day like that, repentance should be something that happens naturally in your life as you interact with the Word of God. The Word of God will bring sins in your life to your attention. Step two. We actively seek a sense of the heinousness of the sin. We actively seek a sense of the heinousness of the sin. And again, this is something that should become more and more natural to us. We want this to be a healthy habit in our lives. When I'm made aware of a sin in my life, more times than not, I don't immediately see that sin the way I should. Maybe the preacher mentions something in the sermon, and I say, hmm, you know, I need to work on that in my life. But if that's all I say, and that's all I feel, I'm not going to repent of that sin. If I'm going to truly repent, I must have a deeper sense of the vileness of that sin. Without that sense of, the sin is yuck, the sin is bad, the sin is... If I don't have that sense, I won't truly repent. And so if I'm made made aware of sin in my life, and I don't immediately feel great sorrow or grief, I should grieve my lack of grief. I should sorrow that what grieves Christ isn't grieving me. And my instinct should be, my healthy habit should be, to afflict my heart and help my heart feel the weight of that sin, to see it the way Christ does. There is something very scary and worrisome about a Christian who says... I know I have a problem with this, but anyway, and keeps on going as if it's not a big deal. If you know you have sin in your life that you struggle with, mourn that sin. As long as you treat it as something you can speak about without tears, that sin will continue to defeat you. Don't let your heart be hard. Take the hoe of the Word of God and strike the soil of your heart again and again. Make the soil soft and ready for repentance. 
So what does this look like practically? It means that while you're sitting and preaching, while you're sitting in small group on Wednesday night, and you hear a sin revealed to you that you know you have, you seek to feel the weight of that sin. And after the sermon or after the Bible study, during your times of personal prayer, bring that sin back to mind and bring it before God. Grieve it before Him. As you have your daily devotions, this is what you're after. God, help me to see my sin and to mourn it. Let this be a regular part of your life. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be Comforted. Don't you want to have comfort in this life? Don't you want to have a conscience that is comforted? So step three. Step three. We confess our sins to God and to others. If you're wondering where I'm, I'm getting these steps from, it's from everything we did back before Christmas. Now I'm just kind of bringing it all together in one sermon in practical terms. This is all application of everything we've seen tonight. Step three is we confess our sins to God and others. Sadly, many people get to step two and they stop. God brings the sin to their attention and they feel guilty about it. And then they mistake the fact that they feel guilty about it for true repentance. No action is taken. No resolves are made. No change happens in the life. But because they have felt guilty for a few fleeting moments, they assume that that's repentance. But Scripture tells us again and again, no, we must go further. We are to confess our sins. Why? Well, first, if you are not a confessor of your sin, the Bible says you're not a possessor of God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness has always been on the condition that we are willing to confess our sins. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 40, But if they confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So in the Old Testament, God says clearly that His people must confess their sins. If they are to be forgiven. In the New Testament, 1 John 8 and 9, I think most of you know it by heart. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you see, God has never promised to save anyone who doesn't confess their sins. It doesn't mean that you have to confess every sin. We don't even know our every sin. right? But the kind of heart that looks to God for saving mercy is the heart that is willing to confess the wrongs that he or she now sees, the wrongs that he or she knows he has committed. We're not to hide our wrongs from God, nor are we to make excuses for them, nor are we to diminish them as if they're small. We are to own our sins in God's sight, letting Him know that we see our own filth, and therefore we know we need His mercy as much today as any day we've ever lived. Dear friends, if we confess our sins, 
then we are freshly reminded how badly we need the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ every day and how lost we would be without Him. And so this should be a regular practice as sins are brought to our attention. Second, we should confess our sins because in doing so, we clear the air between us and God and and help bring peace to our own souls. I love David's testimony in Psalm 32. Listen and see if this sounds familiar. Have you ever experienced this in your life? David says, when I kept silent, he's talking about keeping silent about the sins he had committed. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is David not in a good place. He feels the hand of God upon him. And this is not the hand of God of blessing. This is discipline. This is, David, you know you're in the wrong, and I am putting discipline upon you until you are willing to confess it to me. And finally, what did David do? He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And David found peace and help because he stopped holding on to his sin and he confessed it before the Father. He dealt with it before God and God forgave, which is why David says at the beginning of that psalm, Blessed, happy, the favor of God is on the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32 is a celebration of the healing that can come when we stop trying to hide our sins or pretend like they're no big deal and instead regularly take them to God and confess them and just pour them out before His throne. There's one more aspect to this. We don't have to confess every sin to other people. But if we are serious about defeating sin in our lives, we ought to confess those sins that trouble us to some trusted brothers or sisters in Christ. When our sins are taken out of the dark and are brought into the light by confessing to other people, good and redemptive things often happen. James 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confessing sins to one another should be normal in the life of a church. And the more normal it becomes, the healthier we will be. In those small groups on Wednesday nights, we're reading a passage and a, 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 something gets brought to light and you're being afflicted. Oh, I, that's a sin in my life. I know it. You say to the rest of your brothers and sisters during the prayer time, hey, we just read about that. That's a prayer request for me. I struggle with that. Pray for me. That should be normal. It should be every Wednesday that kind of thing is happening in our church. So as we live the Christian life, God will often reveal to us sin. And we're to see that sin as truly evil the way God does. We're to own up to it before God and we're to confess our sin to God. And sometimes... If it's a tricky sin, if it's one that's got its grip on us, we need to confess it to other people so they can help us. What do we do next? Step four. We ask forgiveness from God and embrace the gospel. 
We ask forgiveness from God and embrace the gospel. Yes, we're already saved even before we do this. But it is good and right for us not only to confess our sins, but to ask God for forgiveness and to plead before Him the blood of Jesus Christ. When we do that, we can be sure that He looks upon us with mercy and that we truly are forgiven. In prayer, we are to rejoice in the forgiveness that we have through Jesus. How do we know that we should continue to ask God to forgive us for our sins? Because it's part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We are to ask God to forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. And we're to embrace the forgiveness of our sins and let that so affect us that we are quick to forgive others. We should be daily so amazed that God would forgive us that it makes it quick and easy for us to forgive those who sin against us. Step five. We ask forgiveness from others impacted. We ask forgiveness from others impacted. This is something that should be common a very practical part of your regular life. It should be normal for you to ask people forgiveness when you know they've been impacted by sins in you. Yes, all of our sins are ultimately against God. But our sins do affect people around us. And when we have wronged someone, it is right that we go to them and ask for their forgiveness. It's not only right for us to do it, we we should do it. There is an obligation upon us to do it. Now, people can drive themselves crazy thinking about this kind of thing. Maybe you lost your temper and said something you shouldn't have said, and you did it in a public place like the mall. Well, there is a sense in which you sinned against every person in that mall that saw you lose your temper because you set a bad example for them. Does that mean you need to try and figure out every person who was standing in the mall at the moment that you lost your temper and get their contact information and call them up and ask their forgiveness? I'm telling you, people can drive themselves crazy trying to figure out this kind of thing. What about when you get home from the doctor's office and you realize you accidentally stole their pen? They gave it to you to fill out your form. You weren't thinking about it. You held on to it. Now it's in your home. Do you need to call up the doctor's office and and ask them for forgiveness? Here is the main biblical principle to keep in mind, and I think it's in your outline. Um, If there is some sin that is hindering full peace between you and someone else, Or if there is some sin that a person doesn't know about it, but if they did know about it, it would hinder full peace between you and them, then you need to confess and ask their forgiveness. So that's that's the the, the practical principle that I think we can use to sort out those those kinds of questions. And it's based on certain passages of Scripture. Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 Be at peace among yourselves. If there is any sin that is hindering peace between you and anyone else, that sin needs to be dealt with and forgiveness needs to be asked for. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verses 23-24 If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. 
Until you make things right with those you've sinned against, you should expect the discipline of God to be upon you. Don't expect God to receive your worship and to bless you if you are refusing to seek reconciliation with people that you know you've wronged. Now, the second part of that statement, hear it again. If there is some sin that a person doesn't know about, but if they did know about it, it would hinder full peace between you and them, then you need to confess and ask their forgiveness. My guess is that that doctor's office isn't really all that concerned about the pen. And peace is not something that's being hindered if you don't call them and and bring it to their attention. But there are sins that maybe you've done against other people that if they were to find out about them, it would cause true problems. Well, remember, somehow, some way, your sin may be brought to light And if you don't go ahead and confess your sin to this person and ask forgiveness, they may find out about your sin some other way. They may find out what you did or what you said, and then the situation will be even worse. So don't say, so-and-so doesn't know that I sinned against them, so we're at peace. Your peace is a fragile peace, and it may soon be a broken peace. Instead, you go be the one to tell them. You be the one to not make excuses, but own up to your sin. Because that is true repentance. And all the sanctifying effects of true repentance. There is something something wonderfully humbling that happens in us when we have to go to people we love and confess our sins and ask their forgiveness. This is something that will serve your soul well. This is something that will bring you closer to God. This is something that will cause others to see the change that God has wrought in your life. There are a few things you can do that are a greater testimony to other people than when you humbly go to them and confess your sins and ask their forgiveness. It's a wonderful testimony. Step six takes this further. We need to make restitution to those impacted by our sin. We need to make restitution to those impacted by our sin. So until you're ready to do everything you can to make restitution, you've not really owned up to your sin. And you're not really striving for good peace with others. But when we are willing to make restitution, to to make it right, that shows real evidence that God's grace is burning in our hearts and that the fruit of repentance is happening in us. And you know the great example here. It's that wee little man, Zacchaeus, right? He was a wee little man, but he was a big man in society. He was the chief tax collector in Jericho. Zacchaeus was very rich. And like other tax collectors of that time, the rule was that he had a minimum that he had to collect from the people and pass on to Rome. But everything he could get out of the people beyond that minimum, he could keep for himself. And therefore, Zacchaeus made his living and his riches by taking advantage of other people. But Zacchaeus was wonderfully changed by the Holy Spirit of God. He experienced the forgiveness of God for his sin. And what did it look like practically? Zacchaeus gave half of his possessions to the poor, since it was on their backs that he had become rich. And then he promised that he would restore back fourfold anything he had defrauded from others. 
What did Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Is there anyone in your life that you need to make restitution to? Ask the Lord to show you if there's someone like that. If there's someone or multiple people that you need to make restitution to, don't put this off. Do what you can right now to make things right. And so in our everyday living, very practical, what what does repentance look like? God shows us a sin. We grieve over the sin. We confess that sin and ask God's forgiveness for that sin. We go to those impacted, ask their forgiveness, seek to make it right. And then finally, step seven. Depending on God's strength, we pursue holy living. Depending on God's strength, we pursue holy living. No repentance is true if you do everything I said and then you jump right back into that sin again. Yes, we may commit the same sin again and again and again, but it should always be with us fighting like crazy. It should always be with us warring against that sin It should never be with us having repented and then we go back and treat that sin lightly. No. Real repentance means that we acknowledge our failure in the last battle, but then we prepare for victory in the next one. This time we say, I am not going to let my tongue get the best of me like it did last time. This time, I'm not going to put myself in that same situation that made me ripe for temptation. No, I'm going to avoid that. We learn lessons. By God's grace, take to heart the truths and the principles of God's Word that help you fight for holy living. Cultivate the virtues that oppose your vices, right? So if pride is getting you, Work to cultivate humility. If greed is getting you, work to cultivate generosity. Also, learn from your past sins what you can do to prevent them in the future. I remember one time we had a salesman come to our house and they were putting pressure on us to buy what they were selling. And they kept telling us what a great deal this was going to be, even though it was a fairly large sum of money. And I allowed myself to be pressured and I bought the product and the very next day knew I had made a terrible decision. And it was more than just a mistake. It was a sin because I had been a bad steward of the monies that God had entrusted to me. And, and I know where my paycheck comes from, by the way. It comes from, from you folks. And so... That experience proved painful to me as we then had to pay for this thing that we had purchased that we knew we shouldn't have purchased. Well, what do we do? By God's grace, we learned from that. It's now a standing rule at our house that if someone comes to the door selling anything more than a candy bar, we tell them up front, we're going to take 24 hours before we make a decision. Right? Even if we love it, we have a 24-hour rule now in our home. Why? To keep us from repeating the same sin again. So by God's grace, look at where you've fallen. What can you learn? What can you do? Even though you were beaten last time, what can you do to make sure by grace you have victory the next time? Friends, this is what repentance should look like in our lives. Let us live this out. Let this, these seven steps, they should become second nature to us. They should become healthy habits for us. They should become a regular part of our lives. And while we can make some real ground in this life, we will never be sinless in this life. 
And since sin will be a daily reality till the day we die, repentance must be a daily reality till the day we die. And then we'll enter that world where we will never sin again and where you will never need to repent again. So let's look forward to that day, that day where we will never have to repent anymore. But until it comes, let repentance be a daily, regular part of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask now that you would help us to put these things into practice. We do ask that you would open our eyes to those places in our lives where we are not like Christ. Those places in our lives where we are still following the world's patterns. Those places in our lives where we are still sinning. Father, help us to grieve those sins, to confess those sins, to find forgiveness from those sins in Christ. Help us to be quick to confess our sins to others, to ask their forgiveness when we've sinned against them, to to make restitution if we possibly can. Father, we ask that you would give us a resolve for holy living. Father, at the end of the day, this is all for the glory of Christ. He is the lover of our soul. He is our righteousness before you. He is the mediator, the one who has brought us and you together, O Father. Father, we want to see the name of Jesus Christ honored in this world. Make us holy for Christ's sake. So that our light will shine purer and brighter. And that many will come to know our Savior. Father, bless us in this coming week. We don't know what's ahead for us, but you do. Bless us. Give us much grace. And Father, bring us back again to grow more in your truth and in your love. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.